Good morning. Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We continue our study, our third week of study in this chapter. Um, And this morning, we'll be studying in particular verses 16 to 24. I'd like to begin our time by reading John 6, 16 to 24. Love a word of prayer and we will begin. John chapter 6. Starting in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because of a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near to the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Lord God, I pray that as we study this passage, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might understand and see those things that the crowd missed, that the disciples stumbled over, We might behold the glory of your Son, and seeing that glory, we might be changed from one image of glory to another. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Now, you'll notice that I'm I'm titling this John 6, 1-71, Part 3, even though we're looking at a discrete unit of Scripture, and that's because this passage can't really be understood outside of the entire chapter. The entire chapter is one Unit. It follows a pattern that John has set up in the previous chapter, which is a sign or a miracle followed by a discourse of Jesus unpacking its significance, significance, if you pardon the pun. And that this is a united theme we looked at in our first week, doing an overview of it. So in this passage, what John is doing at a sort of meta level is getting our participants from one side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberius, if you prefer, to the other side. That's where the discourse will take place. If you look at verse, um, chapter 6, verse 59, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So the discourse takes place in Capernaum. And so verses 16 to 24 get... the the people in the narrative from one side of the sea to the other. Um, The disciples cross in a boat. Jesus crosses walking on the sea. And the crowd crosses in boats. So from a narrative structure, that's, that's where we're going. Now, as we look at this, what John leaves out versus what he adds in will help direct our focus. We looked at this last week when we considered the feeding of the 5,000. The only miracle of Jesus' public ministry unless you want to include the miracle of the death, burial, resurrection, but the only miracle Jesus presided over in all four Gospels. 
and we saw that John left out a lot of information. Not that he didn't believe it. It wasn't for his purpose. We've seen John again and again be aware of the other Gospels and evidence an assumption that many of his readers are aware of the other Gospels. A little aside in chapter 3, John had not yet been put in prison. 324, nowhere in John's Gospel does he record John the Baptist being put into prison. That only makes sense if John thinks many of his readers track. They've heard these things before. So John does add a couple key details to the feeding of the 5,000. He adds the nearness of the Passover. And most importantly, he tells us why it is Jesus leaves so abruptly. If you read Matthew or Mark, we're just told that immediately he sends the disciples away and retreats. But the, the other gospels don't tell us how the crowd responded. What was their response to this stunning miracle? Feeding to the full 5,000 men. And Matthew tells us, plus the women and children. Massive, massive public miracle. And none of the other gospels tell us how the crowd responded or give an explanation for why Jesus so suddenly leaves. John's gospel gives that to us. This crowd perceiving the miracle in verse 14 concludes, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And they're, they're dead on the money. This is the prophet like Moses This is what was spoken of in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, that says, The Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. They they get it. They understand. Moses fed the people of Israel in the wilderness with bread from heaven. This one is feeding us in the wilderness miraculous bread as well. They put it together. They're right. But their next step of their conclusion is false. Deuteronomy 18 makes it clear that the fundamental obligation you have when you identify the prophet like Moses, the one thing God requires is you listen to him. They want to make him king. They're looking for, and this is another evidence of, they're looking for an earthly savior, an earthly deliverer. Just as we understand that when the Lord Jesus returns at his second coming, he will rule the nation's and smash some of the rod of iron. He will defeat his foes. He will set up a kingdom. That is what the Jews were looking for. And a king who can feed you, you may have heard that an army marches on its stomach, is, is a good king. And especially if the other miracles, we know at this time Jesus has already raised people from the dead, the widow's son. Well, if your king can feed you every day and he can raise you up from the battlefield if you die, you could see why they might be excited. And Jesus doesn't want to be that type of king. And because of that, we're told that's why he leaves so suddenly. So in our text, in a meta level for the chapter, we're getting Jesus, getting the disciples, getting the crowd across the sea. But in so doing, Jesus will reveal more of his glory. And we'll learn something about all of our actors in this text. Let's begin by looking at the disciples at night. You can break this up to that night and the next morning. And interestingly, John's narrative focus is on the perspective of first the disciples and then the crowd. We get to see it from their vantage point. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which 
they were going. So let's begin with the disciples' evening departure. The disciples' evening departure. Now, the other gospels make it clear Jesus sends them away. John isn't interested in that. He may assume we know this, but it's not to his point. He just wants to set the scene. When the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum, which the other gospels tell us is where they came from, this remote and desolate place that Jesus had retreated to with his disciples to pray, to hear about their their ministry after he learned about the beheading of John the Baptist. That's what the other gospels give us. They apparently got there by boat and returned by boat. If you turn back to chapter 2, you'll be reminded that Jesus has lived in Capernaum for some time. In chapter 2, verse 12, after the, the wedding at Cana, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So Capernaum is, is some sort of base of operations, a familiar town that Jesus will stay in. And so it makes sense that they, they left from Capernaum, went to this remote place. Jesus performed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and the disciples return. Um, now, let to set the context of what the disciples had seen, they had just witnessed Jesus reject earthly kingship. They had just witnessed Jesus reject earthly kingship. Verse 15, perceiving then that they're about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. There's something in their response that Jesus disapproves of. It'll come to a head in our text next week, and I have to sort of borrow from that briefly to help frame this. They're going to find Jesus, and Jesus is not going to be thrilled that he's been found by them. They're going to to greet him in in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus said to them, answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. So his concern, his rebuke to them, is that they only have seen and are interested in earthly blessings, earthly blessings works that Jesus can do for them, and they've missed the greater significance of the sign, and their interest in him is in this life, in this earth only. The disciples have seen Jesus reject kingship, and we know, we know that they're struggling with this as well. We know the disciples don't put all the pieces together yet. Um, they've witnessed him reject earthly kingship, which I'm sure had them scratching their heads, Another point to make here is that Jesus' disciples here include more than the 12. In fact, in the discourse that follows, that there's three or four principal groups. You've got the crowd. The crowd, I think, becomes the Jews in verse 41. Um, in verse 41, the Jews grumbled about him. I, I think th- the reason for the shift in title is that some subset of the crowd gets on boats, comes over. Jesus is teaching in a synagogue in Capernaum. And now the group of those Jews who are already there, the people who lived in Capernaum, the people in the synagogue, plus the addition of those who came on the boats, now make up the group, the Jews. I, I think they sort of morph into that group. And then in verse um, 60, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And then in verse 67, Jesus said to the 12. So a subset of the disciples is the 12. We have the crowd that I think becomes the Jews, the disciples who are more than the 12, and then we have the 12. By the way, this is another evidence that John 
thinks he's writing to people who know some of the major plot points. He just introduces the 12. There's no telling who the 12 are. He just assumes we understand. Oh, yeah, there's 12. He said to the 12 with no explanation. He'll explain what rabbi means. He'll explain what Messiah means, but he doesn't explain to us who the 12 are. There seems to be an assumption that he thinks we know already. So the disciples' evening departure, they had witnessed Jesus reject earthly kingship, and this group of disciples include more than the 12. It includes more than the 12. And they embark on a boat to Capernaum. And it was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them, which doesn't make much sense unless John is giving that remark for us. There's no indication the disciples were expecting Jesus to walk on water to them. When he does come, they're frightened. They're not saying, oh, there he is finally. So I think the best way to understand this comment, Jesus had not yet come to them, is writing to us, to people John knows assumes know the major plot points. This is evening. They're about three and a half miles out. 25 or 30 stadia, which is a Roman measurement, about three and a half miles. And then to us, Jesus hadn't yet come to them, assuming we know Jesus is going to come to them. Again, another indication John thinks he's relating this account to a group who most likely are familiar with this basic outline. It was now dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. So that's the setting. The disciples are in a boat, probably rowing. It's night. Jesus isn't there. They're crossing to Capernaum. Now we get to the disciples' great fear. We get to the disciples' great fear. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus. Oh, well, actually, verse 18. The sea became rough because of a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming to the boat, and they were frightened. They were frightened. So they're afraid, and we've got two reasons why they're afraid. The first, because of the darkness and the storm. Because of the darkness and the storm. Um, some, some peoples, like the Phoenicians, are great seafarers. And even though Israel is upon the bank of the Mediterranean, the Israelites never really developed a massive seagoing force. In fact, the sea, the ocean, the deeps are perennial indicators of, of fear and uncertainty. I'll give you some examples. When, when, when the psalmists speak about terrors, when the psalmist speaks about threats that are difficult to overcome frequently, it's in the imagery of water. Uh, Psalm 69 of David. Save me, O God, for waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire. Where there is no foothold, I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. Or in Psalm 107, let me get there. In Psalm 107, we read this. Some went down to sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went up to the de- down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. The waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. This is one of the reasons why the parting of the Red Sea, especially from a Jewish perspective, is so magnificent and amazing. Seas, 
deep, boiling, churning waters are terrifying. This is at night, and a storm is arising. There's a choppy sea. They're frightened. Then, there's even more reason to be frightened, just be based on that. They're also frightened, and John points the attention particularly to, because of the man walking upon the stormy sea. It's really remarkable how John tells this story. He doesn't tell us that Jesus started doing this. Again, we're getting this from the disciples' perspective. Jesus is incidental in the disciples' perspective up to this point. And then, yes, the entire gospel is about Jesus, but as he tells this, the camera, if you will, or the screenplay is following the disciples. They get in the boat. They row out to the middle. It's dark. Jesus hasn't come to them. A storm rises. Then they're afraid, and they see Jesus coming in the storm. What an awesome sight that must have been. It's dark. The storm And you can begin to see some sort of shape or outline in the distance. They aren't expecting him. This frightens them, much like I think it would frighten you or me. This is unexpected. There's no Old Testament miracle that that in any way could get them to anticipate this. This is in truly remarkable form. And again, pause and just consider and wonder at our Savior. When you think he's going to zig, he zags. They, They think he's come to be king. He rejects kingship, sends the crowd away immediately, sends them across the water. And then they look out, and here's some shadowy form walking across a raging sea. Not just a calm sea. I I know you may have pictured this in your minds. I I have. It really drove home to me. He's walking over waves. I mean, that, that would have looked astounding. And so they're afraid, and I think we can understand why they're afraid. Jesus has earlier told Nicodemus that the wind blows where it wishes, the spirit blows where it wishes. Apparently, Jesus goes for a walk where he wishes. I know. I mean, <laughs> he's just out for, he's just walking across. That's not what I would have thought of. Um, that's not what I would have thought of. Um, so they're afraid. They're afraid because of the storm, and they're afraid because of the man walking upon the stormy sea. And this also could possibly add further connections to the prophet like Moses. Moses had a very significant, miraculous water crossing with the splitting of the Red Sea. Jesus, in his own right, has an even more miraculous um, water crossing, but that, that's not necessarily clear. But again, we see a point in which Jesus is a prophet like Moses, but greater than Moses. Next point, see, the disciples' sovereign Lord. The disciples' sovereign Lord. Verse 20 and 21. He said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Jesus speaks. What he says is is simple. It is I. Do not be afraid. He reveals himself to them. Which again, they're not expecting him. He has to speak, tell them. Similar to the angels who appear, the, the first thing angels say when they appear to people is don't be afraid. Jesus speaks to them. Again, not in the boat yet, just walking on water, walking on a stormy sea. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, the precise Greek wording for it is I, ego a me, later in the gospel, clearly becomes a claim to deity. In John eight fifty eight, Jesus says to the Jews, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And in that context, no doubt, Jesus is taking, claiming, the same name of God revealed at the burning bush. When Moses says, who shall I say sent me? Tell them that I am sent you. Now, it's not entirely clear when 
in, in the gospel, Jesus is saying this in a sense that it's meant to be understood that way. In, in John's gospel, there's no indication the disciples get anything more than just it's I. And if Jesus wanted to say it is I, it's me, this is what he'd say. I do think there may be, for the, for the thoughtful reader, from John's point of view, remember, there's the event as it happened, Jesus speaking to the disciples in the boat. But John's writing about this decades later for us. And you read through and you know later in the gospel, the ego me statements, the I am, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, I am the vine. We, we know those are going to take up greater and greater significance. Perhaps we're meant to see in this even some subtle claim to deity. The disciples, there's no response on their part. They, if, if that's going on, it goes over their heads. But Jesus does calm their fears. When they, when they learn it's Jesus, they become glad. They were glad. <laughs> this is an understatement. They were glad to take him into the boat. Um, a, a more woodenly literal reading is they were wanting to receive him into the boat. Um, it's, it's, it's an imperfect verb, continuous past action, which means they were asking him to get in the boat more than once. The picture is Jesus is walking. You, you, you want to get in the boat, Lord? We'd love to have you in the boat, Lord. Get, come on, get, you know. And I don't know how long this takes place. We know from the other gospels that eventually he does get in the boat. But the picture here is the Lord who's sovereign they're in a boat, and they're frightened of the storm. They're frightened from Jesus. Jesus is walking on the storm. Now, John doesn't tell us about Jesus calming the storm. John doesn't tell us about Peter getting out and walking to him. It's not that John denies those things happened. It's not what he's interested in. I think John, in part, shaves some of the details off because he wants to get to the discourse. He wants to get to the other side. He wants to get to what Jesus says. But there is still something clear to see here about our Lord and there is something to help explain and, and frame what's coming. Um, and we will see that in just a moment. Now we get to John's enigmatic statement. Immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now there's two possibilities of what's going on here. Some have suggested a second miracle, a miraculous transport. That Jesus is walking across there, asking him to get in the boat, and then poof, bam, they're on the other side of the lake. It could be that. I think more likely and less dramatically, while they're urging him to get in the boat, remember, it's dark out. They're not looking at the shore. They're looking at Jesus. Hey, we'd love to have you get in the boat, Jesus. Come get in the boat, Jesus. All of a sudden, oh, look, hey, we finished crossing the lake. Oh, hey, look, we're at the other side. I, I tend to think that. So your blank here is, by this point, they had crossed the sea. It, it could be a teleportation. I, I, the, the ESV's rendering more strongly suggests that than the Greek text. Um, I, I, you, could, you could also translate and then, then the very next thing they were across the sea and given that he's got this, this imperfect verb of pa- continuous past action they were wanting him to receive him into the boat that's how they finished the last mile and a half two miles across the sea I think they, that's how they get across they were wanting to receive him into the boat by this point they had finally crossed the sea so what's the significance here what is Jesus teaching them, revealing about himself to them. What does John want us to see? I think the point here is Jesus reveals to them more of his divine person, more of his divine person. So in feeding the 5,000, in one sense, Jesus establishes that he is a great prophet, a prophet like Moses, but he's doing works that have antecedents, 
We saw that Elisha, in a, to a smaller degree, did something very similar with barley loaves. He fed 100 men with 20 barley loaves, and somehow the miraculous supply was there. So somebody doesn't necessarily need to conclude Jesus is divine from the feeding of the 5,000. You could conclude, well, he's in the category like Elisha, like Moses. And they get that. They get this is the prophet like Moses. Nobody has done anything like this in the Old Testament. In fact, turning your Bible to Job 9, there is an antecedent text describing the living God this way. Job 9. In other words, you might be forgiven for just thinking Jesus is the great prophet like Moses and not necessarily put him into divine categories. For the disciples in the boat who saw this, however, they're seeing something more. They're getting greater revelation. They're getting more information. Let's just start with Job's answer starting in verse 1. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wishes to contend with him, one could not answer him. Once in a thousand times, he is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not. Now what Job's doing is he's moving into describing the power, the excellency, the greatness of the Lord God. And why it is he can't answer him? Why it is he can't argue with him? So these are literally things that make God unique in a class of his own. The things he's describing are are things that can only be attributed to the living God and no one else. That's the nature of the argument. He removes mountains and they know it not. When he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea who made the bear and Orion and the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Now, what's interesting is in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of this passage, it's even a more clear text. What we have in the ESV, he tramples on the waves of the sea. Septuagint says this, who alone has stretched out the heavens and walks on the sea as on firm ground. So there is at least one antecedent picture in the Old Testament. Our God is the God who tramples, walks on the stormy sea. No other person in the Old Testament has done this. This is, this is an attribute given to God. And then Jesus does that. Jesus does that. And so part of the significance is this. We're going to see the crowd has questions about what happened. They don't know what happened. They know something uh, suspicious or confusing or befuddling happened. They don't know how Jesus got across. The disciples did. The disciples did see. They got this extra miracle. They got this extra sight of glory, which makes their desertion of Jesus all the more devastatingly wicked, makes them more culpable. Um, just, just again to remind you the flow of the narrative, they're going to meet up with Jesus in verse 25, the crowd. Jesus is going to push back. You're not here for the right reasons. They're going to start talking about the bread from heaven. And immediately in verse 41, the Jews grumbled. They're not going to like what Jesus says. They've identified him as the prophet like Moses. But do they listen to him? Do they receive his teaching? Oh, no, they don't like it. And even though Deuteronomy 18 says, I'm going to raise him up from among your brothers, they, they say in verse 42, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? 
Why is he putting on airs? Why is he saying he's the bread come down from heaven? No, they're not willing to receive him. Okay, so that's the crowd. That's the Jews. But then look at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, these are the people in the boat. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you see the Son of Man descending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. These are the disciples who didn't just see the feeding of miraculous bread. They saw the theophany. They saw the Christ walking on the storm like only God does. How tragic. How tragic. So part of what John is doing is he's showing that to us. We're meant to see. We're meant to make the connection. We're meant to see the majesty, the glory. What a savior. Wind blows where it wishes. The Holy Spirit goes. Jesus walks where he wishes. He is Lord of land and sea. Lord of creation. And these disciples who have seen in, in 24 hours not one but two miraculous displays of power because of the difficulty of Jesus' teaching are going to go home. That's tragic. Now John has written this. We know that we might see and believe. Remember, I'll refer you back to John's purpose in writing. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written, including this sign. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Jesus shows some of his glory, some of his deity to the disciples. And the twelve, they stay. But most of the disciples, many of the disciples, they go home even after witnessing the miraculous feeding and him walking on the water. Which let me just pause and say, you may be tempted to think sometimes, if I could just see a miracle, if I could just have a talk with God, I'd believe. That's not the account in the Gospels. Your, your unbelief is not due to not seeing a miracle. And if you saw a miracle, according to Jesus in Matthew, it would, it would not create belief. You remember Jesus told the parable of the, the rich man and Lazarus. They both die. And Lazarus goes to Abraham's side and is comforted. And the rich man goes to a place of torment. And he cries out first that Lazarus might come and give him some water. And Abraham says no. And then he says, well, well send him back to my brothers. And G- what does Jesus say? What, what words does he say Abraham says? He says, no, let them listen to Moses and the prophets. And the rich man says, no, no, no. If you send someone back from the dead, then they will believe. And Abraham says, and Jesus tells us, Abraham says, if they don't listen to Moses, neither will they believe if someone rises from the dead. The evidence here, the evidence from this chapter is 5,000 plus people saw the miraculous feeding. The disciples in the boat saw the miraculous water walking. And yet that doesn't stop them from turning away. Jesus teaching Jesus' prophetic content offends, troubles, disturbs them, and they go home. So 
I would love to be there and see this, but we, we want to excuse our unbelief. We want to excuse our doubting because somehow we tell ourselves it would be different if I were there. But the story of Israel in the wilderness is miracle after miracle, grumble after grumble, right? They're like us. Don't, don't flatter yourself. You, you too would be impressed. Whoa! And then you'd be back with the same heart and the same, same problems you struggle with now. Seeing miracles doesn't sanctify people, doesn't change hearts. And, and so these disciples see this, and many of them, regardless, are going to go home. Many of them are going to go home. Our Lord, our Lord is awesome. And, and John tells us this, that we might see and not miss what many of his disciples did miss. Okay, that brings us to our second point, the crowd the next morning. So we've got Jesus and the disciples across to Capernaum. Now let's pick up with the crowd. The next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw, sorry, the other side of the sea saw, on the other side of the sea, saw, pause, that there was only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boat and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So the crowd's confusion, we begin with the crowd's confusion. And again, this part of the story, we're getting it from their perspective. Now, this crowd is some subset, that's your blank, some subset of the crowd from the day before. Why do do I say that? Well, I doubt there are enough boats from Tiberias for 5,000 men plus their wives and children to travel. But more to the point, in verse um, chapter 6, in verse um, 59... Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. I do not think 5,000 people could fit in the synagogue or even gather around it and hear someone speaking inside. We're to understand this group, and even the, the ESVs, those who remained, suggest some had gone home already, that this group is small enough that Jesus could speak to them and they either fit in the synagogue or could be just outside close enough that they could hear what he said inside the synagogue. But this is a much smaller subset from the day before. A much smaller subset from the day before. We don't know exactly how many, but enough that they can go to Capernaum and hear Jesus teaching in a synagogue. They're a subset of the crowd from the day before. They're going to meld into the Jews, starting in verse 41. If you look at 41, the Jews grumbled. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed. This this subset is going to meld into that, mixing with the inhabitants of Capernaum who are there already. So they are a subset of the crowd from the day before. And John suggests their confusion by telling them what they know and what they don't know. They knew the disciples had left in the only boat. They knew that. They'd seen the disciples leave. They'd seen that Jesus wasn't in the boat. Um, They saw that there had only been one boat and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Now, there's an an implication here that they've looked for him. Because the most natural conclusion would be, if the disciples left and Jesus didn't get in the boat, then Jesus is still here. But they know he's not there, so presumably they've gone looking for him locally. I I think that's a reasonable assumption. Um, And and again, the... 
The, the tragedy of all this is these are people taking energy and efforts to find and seek Jesus. They come out to a desolate place without food. Some of these people stayed overnight, slept on the ground. They're still looking for Jesus. They're about to get in boats and sail across the sea to find him again. And yet we know, and this is part of why this is a unified text, we know that these are people not by and large of faith, such that they grumble, they complain. Jesus doesn't greet them with, hey, thanks for following me. Good to see you again. He says, truly, truly, you didn't come here because you saw a sign. You came here because you ate your fill of bread. And it's tragic then to consider that people who are not believing as they ought can still make such effort, do such works, persevere in seeking Jesus. It's tragic. So they, they figure out Jesus isn't there. They figure out that he didn't get in the boat with the disciples. Now, who knows what they thought happened? They're confused by this. There may even be a suggestion that there's some indication that perhaps they even suspected something miraculous may have happened. I, I certainly don't think they would have guessed But the fact that when they do meet with Jesus, look at what their question is in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? How'd you get here? How did you get across here? They're they're befuddled. They don't understand. It's confusing. So they're, they're confusion. They knew the disciples had left in the only boat, and they knew that Jesus had not left with his disciples. So what do they do? The next thing is boats from Tiberias came near to the place where they'd eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Now, we don't know why these boats from Tiberias came. It was the closest city. Possibly some of these had made arrangements. Possibly we, we know that some of the crowd has left. Perhaps some of them left in their boats the night before and said, we'll come back in the morning and pick you up. We, we don't know how or why. John isn't interested. You could, you could put forward a number of explanations. But a number of boats appear. And so now they've got means to cross over and seek Jesus. He, he, he connects and reminds us again with what happened um, in, in saying this. Boats came near the place where they'd eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Which again suggests to me that John's purpose is to get us to the other side quickly so that we can pick up the discourse on Jesus as the bread of life. One of the reasons he may have left out some of the details in Jesus walking on water is he doesn't want to get too sidetracked from where he's really going, just picking this thread back up. So he reminds us. They came near the place where they'd eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Now, one of the reasons why I think um, I'd further add that, that John is highlighting the deity of Christ in the walking on water is in verse 23 there. This is the first time in John's gospel that John the narrator has referred to Jesus as the Lord, which is significant. It's not that John didn't think Jesus was the Lord when he wrote verse 1 of chapter 1 or so forth. But when the narrator does this, when he begins speaking of the principal character in this way, it suggests that he thinks to his readers he's proven his point. He's shown enough evidence now that he can begin just referring to Jesus as the Lord, which then suggests that the walking on water is part of that argument. He can call him the Lord now, having shown us Jesus walk on water. So this is the first time in John's gospel that the narrator refers to the principal character as the Lord. And so that, again, points in the direction that John sees the, the walking on water contributing to the argument, the demonstration of the deity of Christ. Okay? So 
to where the Lord had given thanks, to where the Lord had given thanks, and to where they'd eaten the bread. And what do they do? They get in the boats to Capernaum. Um, they saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples. They got in the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And if this weren't part of a larger text, you might think this is all well and good. But knowing where the text goes, this is tragic. These people stuck around to see more of Jesus. They slept, presumably, in the the wilderness, out, out in a barren place. They get in a boat and make effort to go find and follow Jesus. They, they meet up with him. They're persistent. They put energy in. And they're seeking Jesus in one sense. And when they find Jesus, similar to his response to Nicodemus, Jesus doesn't say, well done. Thanks for hanging in there. He, he gives them a mild rebuke. Well, we'll pick this up next week. Look how Jesus responds to them. They say to him, when did you come here? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Which is to say, he's not pleased with their reasons for seeking him. So I just want to leave our time this morning by, by throwing out that why you want Jesus and why you are seeking Jesus is the critical issue. And this notion of seek and desire in John's gospel has, has, has come up many times. You remember in chapter 1, when John the Baptist points out, Behold the Lamb of God, and two of the disciples of John see that, and they, they come up to Jesus. Jesus turned to them and said, What are you seeking? Rabbi, they said, which means teacher, where are you staying? They're seeking to be with Jesus. And that's good. And we see how immediately the next day, they're confessing Christ as the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote about, the king of Israel. There's a, there's a good seeking of Jesus there. We, we know in chapter 4 when Jesus speaks to the woman at the well that the father is seeking worshipers. But then we read in chapter 5 that the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Jesus confesses of himself in 5.30 that he does not seek his own will but the will of him who sent him and he condemns the Jews in Jerusalem because they do not seek, they receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. And Jesus picks up this thread. There's a play of words here. They're seeking Jesus. They say, Rabbi, when did you come here? But look at 26. Jesus' entire rebuke to them hinges upon their reason for seeking him. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are not seeking me because you saw signs but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And I'm borrowing a little from next week's text, but I have to. And it's a unified passage. It's hard to teach this this eight-verse section without linking it together. Notice something. Notice in verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, what does Jesus say in verse 26? You're not seeking me because you saw signs. Because you ate your fill of the loaves. What do you mean, Jesus? The text says they saw the sign. Clearly, Jesus is meaning something more than simply your eyes beheld a miracle. He he means something like understanding. You didn't really grasp the significance. You saw the sign, yeah, but all you saw out of it was free food. You didn't see something more. 
which is why he's going to explain. It's, it's, it's pointing to me being the bread from heaven. It's pointing to me being the food that saves and gives life and quenches thirst and satisfies. This crowd who is, in some senses, is, is frightening the level, the, the, the lengths they'll go to. They, they truly, in one sense, are seeking Jesus. You, it's, you can't question it. They get in boats. They go. They follow him out. And yet their reason for seeking him is entirely worldly and earthly. Wanting a meal is not a bad thing. What becomes clear, what attracts them to Jesus, the earthly blessings, what repels them from Jesus, his teaching. And so for those who are seeking Jesus, those who are trying to follow Jesus, there are blessings that come with following Christ. The issue is what you deal with his teaching, with his claims with what he says and and the point to get here is you can't have jesus blessings without jesus teachings and that's what we're going to see in this passage you you can't get the blessings without his teachings you can't have jesus just give you a meaning in your life and help your marriage and, and and give you hope for the future you have to take the whole christ how you how do you prove you you've identified jesus as the prophet like moses you listen to him What's the decisive factor that proves the disciples aren't of faith, at least the ones who grumble and complain? Verse 61 or 60. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And this is to people who the day before had seen a tremendous miracle. The disciples had seen a second tremendous miracle. But John has written these things so that we might see, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing, have life in his name. So my prayer and my hope, my, my exhortation for you all, even as we're just setting the stage now for the dialogue, the, the narrative next week that we'll pick up, that, that we would see Christ in his glory, that we would see him as Savior, we would see him as Messiah, we would see him as God, walking on the storm, trampling the sea, and that we would receive his teaching, even when it's hard, and even when we don't always understand that we, the one person who gets this right, Peter speaking for the 12, where else can we go? You alone have the words of life.